1 Kings chapter 19, and today we'll begin in verse 13. And last week, I hope you were here, and if you weren't, I hope you were able to listen to the message on Facebook. But we learned not by the wind, not by an earthquake, neither by fire did the Lord speak to Elijah, but in a still small voice. And that still small voice, we learned about the word still, that still small voice was to calm Elijah's fears, to silence this storm that was in his heart. He was afraid for his life. And now we're going to look at Elijah's response to that still small voice in verse 13. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 13. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in at the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And we had heard that question before when Elijah was inside the cave. Now let's look at its meaning while he stands at the mouth of the cave. It says that he wrapped his face in the mantle, and your question might be, why would he do that? Was there a dust storm? Was it cold and windy? Does he not want to be recognized by the assassins that were sent after him by Jezebel? Is he afraid of the Lord? The word uh, wrapped here signifies a tight wrap, being wrapped tightly like you might wind a body up after it dies. And the mantle in the Bible, if you study the word throughout mostly the Old Testament, you'll see that it's used to hide somebody's face. It's also rent in half or torn in half when a person was grieving. And although there will be some significance attached to this mantle, Later on in our study, I think it's what Elijah did with the mantle that's important to understand here. Remember, he was about to go stand before the Lord God on the mountain. That's what he was told to do. He was in the cave. God said, what are you doing here? He said that through the angel. Now he's in the mouth of the cave. He said, what are you doing here? The angel told him to go stand before the Lord, but Elijah, just like you and I, was unworthy to go stand before the Lord, having fled Jezebel and hidden in a cave. Knowing it was not the Lord's good pleasure that Elijah be in the cave hiding, he was probably ashamed of himself. But another reason for hiding his face might be found if we look at Moses, when he stood before the Lord at the burning bush, there in Exodus chapter 3. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, let's listen to what the Bible says. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. 
And he said, draw not nigh hither. That means don't come any closer. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. He hid his face. That's what Elijah did here. He hid his face. He wrapped the mantle around his face tightly. So, continuing to look at why Elijah would hide his face, because he was afraid to look upon God. Back in verse 11, when God said through the angel, Stand upon the mount before the Lord. That word before is also translated as the word face, as the word presence, as the word countenance. And so that's where Elijah was going to go. And he was ashamed. He was afraid, most likely, just like Moses was. Elijah was afraid of the face of the Lord because he was out of the perfect will of the Lord. It didn't mean he wasn't saved, because he was. But even with this reverential fear, this respect, perhaps even a bit of terror before the Lord, Elijah hadn't completely obeyed yet. Oh, he got out of the inside of the cave, but where did he go? He went to the mouth of the cave. Our text tells us he went out and stood at or stood in the entering end of the cave. The entering end of the cave. That's not the mountain. That's not before the Lord where he was told to go stand. He's between the cave and the mountain. He's between the cave and where he was told to go. He's at the mouth of the cave. And that's what we would say today if we were out looking in caves. Now here's an example If someone said, God has impressed upon my heart that I need to start going to church and I haven't been in years, so I don't want to just go all the time. I don't want to just start off hot and heavy every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Sunday school class, every Bible study. So I think I'll just start by going once a month and see what happens. Well, friend, you're standing at the mouth of the cave. Or maybe as a Christian, perhaps you're a new Christian, or you've been around a while, but you've just never been taught right, or whatever the problem is, and tithing is something you've never done. So you decide to start giving. You say, well, you know what? I want to tithe. I really do. But I'm going to start with 3%. Let's see how that goes. And then then I'll go to 4% if that's okay. You're standing in the mouth of the cave. What if God did that with us? Let's say God stood in the mouth of the cave figuratively by sparing us from the penalty of most of our sin. Let's say he took care of 98% of it. Boy, that's a good grade on a math test, isn't it? But that's condemnation for us. What would that do for us? It would guarantee that we would still be lost. Or what if God said, okay, I'll spare you from 100% of the sin of your past, but you've got to take it from here. 
And he left the forgiveness of our sins from that point on up to us. We'd be lost and undone because God would be standing at the mouth of the cave. I'm glad God brought me from the inside of the cave of my sinful condition and not just to the mouth of it, but to the mount of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm glad Jesus didn't stand at the mouth of the cave offering salvation to the Jew only, but not to the Gentile. He died for Jew and Gentile alike. He stood before the presence of the Lord. And back in our text there in verse 13, it says, And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? That voice, remember, that's the still small voice referred to back in verse 12. God asked Elijah the same question at the mouth of the cave as he did when Elijah was inside the cave. See, God did not say, oh, good, Elijah, at least you've come to the mouth of the cave. That's a good place to be. Well, Elijah couldn't avoid the mouth of the cave, but God wanted him to go through it and not to it. God wants us to hide not in a cave, but in him. When we memorize the third chapter of Colossians, we learned, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You don't need to hide in a cave. You need to hide in Christ if you're not saved. In fact, if you're in unbelief, Jesus says to you, what doest thou here? Or you say, oh, I I believe the gospel and water baptism together will save me. Unto you in that baptistry waiting on part two of your salvation. Jesus said to you, what doest thou here? Only by placing your faith in what Jesus has done for you, may you avoid this question, what doest thou here? And you know, essentially, that's what we ask people who are confused. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Well, I just want to make double sure. I want to, quote, know that I know that I know. I can't stand all those sayings. They further the confusion. They don't stand by faith at the cross where Jesus accomplished their salvation and just rest in him. And God says to them, what doest thou here? Now look at verse 14. Here's Elijah's answer. You're going to think you're reading another verse we already read. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. By giving God the same answer to the same question as he did in verse 11. It makes me think perhaps Elijah wasn't sure God heard him the first time, or maybe he wasn't sure God fully understand, or maybe Elijah was mansplaining it to God. So it'd be safer if he stayed at the mouth of the cave in case Jezebel's assassins came after him. Lord, you know, I'm a wanted man, don't you? Of course he knows. I... I could at least, if I stand here, I could be halfway to where you want me to be, but I could also have an escape route back into the cave in case these assassins see me. 
just in case God wasn't able to preserve his life. You see, that's the sort of doubt he was having. And, and the devil can bring that to God's people just like that, cause you to doubt. Sow that seed in your mind. You know, here's an example. You think, why didn't Elijah just fully trust God? Go out there and stand before him regardless of the fact that he was a wanted man. Trusting God to protect him just like he did at Mount Carmel. When I worked for the state police, we had to qualify annually with our patrol shotguns. And we used two types of rounds in our shotguns, buckshot and a slug. And if you're reasonably familiar with guns and ammo, you know the slug is a big old piece of lead. It's one piece of lead in that in that round. And the buckshot will have seven, eight, nine. It just depends on what type you're getting. But it'll have several pieces of lead. So let's just go with the number nine. So with the slug, there's one piece of lead. And when you qualified, you had to make sure that single piece of lead hit the target. And if it did, you got credit for the hit. And if you missed, you missed it altogether. Now, with buckshot, there were approximately nine pieces of lead in that shell. And only one of them had to hit the target. And if all the rest of them missed the target, that was fine. And the further away you are, the better chance that most of the rounds or most of the lead's not going to hit the target. The other eight rounds or the other eight pieces of lead in that shell could hit the ground or they could go up in the sky. They could land in the, in the field behind the range as long as that one hit the target. But you still got credit for it. Now, this logic, this analogy is similar to what people do when they don't exclusively trust the gospel of Jesus Christ but rather they add water baptism, speaking in tongues, a subsequent Holy Spirit baptism, as they call it, and their good works, and put all that together to save them. The one that believes the gospel, on the other hand, is sure that Jesus was the only piece of lead in that shotgun, and he himself shot the gun to make sure the lead hit the target. He didn't say, well, it's going to be to you. We're going to have to see how good a shot you are. We're going to have to see how strong your faith is or how sincerely you believe. No, he did it. He was the lead. He pulled the trigger. He hit the target. And we just go, I'll take that target. That's mine right there. Now that unbeliever says, you know, I, I'd rather not take any chances. I'd rather shoot the gun myself. And I'm going to load it with buckshot. I'm going to put the gospel pellet in there, and then we'll have the baptistry and some of my good works, and we'll have several other things just in case. And and hopefully one or two of them will hit, and that'll help. And, and maybe I'll be saved, and I hope it's the right ones. Can you see the anxiety? They ignore the fact that Jesus already pulled the trigger and hit the target with the only name by which they may be saved. That poor unbeliever is either hiding in the cave or he's standing at the mouth of the cave just in case Jesus didn't come through for him. 
and they have to finish the work themselves. And boy, that's a that's the devil's Ferris wheel, isn't it? Again, Elijah was a believer. So this is not about his spiritual salvation. It's about his physical salvation from a physical, probably very violent death had Jezebel's assassins gotten their hands on him. So Elijah's offered up this excuse again. The same thing he did back in the prior verses there in verse 10. Now let's look at God's response. Verse 15. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. (laughs) Again, God did not respond to all of Elijah's excuses. He already knew what Elijah had done, or rather what God himself had done through Elijah. And God already knew how sinful Israel was. Back in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, when we studied the life of Solomon, Solomon was praying, and he said this to the Lord, For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. So this report that Elijah gave to God about how bad Israel was, was unnecessary. God already knew. He knew more than Elijah did about it. A quick glance at the map of that part of the world during that time would show that Carmel, Mount Carmel, was roughly between Beersheba and Damascus. And if you remember from our prior study in this chapter, Elijah had gone to Beersheba, which is in Judah, and he left his servant there, and then he went out into the wilderness. So Beersheba and Damascus, which is in Syria, that's the capital city of Syria, that was a place where Elijah was going to go through. Isn't that amazing? Not only did Elijah, God tell Elijah, get out of the cave, go stand before the mount, but he sent him packing right through the very area where he had slain the prophets of Baal. From the area of Beersheba in the wilderness, past Mount Carmel, don't know that he went directly by Mount Carmel, but he was in the general area up to Damascus, Syria. For you all, it would be like this. Isn't that amazing? Jezebel's bounty hunters were certainly in that area. But God's plan for Elijah was not going to be prevented by those who sought Elijah's life. And let's look in verse 15 what he told Elijah to do. At the end of verse 15, he said, Anoint. Hazael to be king over Syria. This is a good place for us to be reminded of how the providence of God is beyond our understanding. If God doesn't reveal it to us, then we'll not know it until we get to the, get to heaven or if God reveals it to us some other way. But we don't understand and we say that openly when Things happen that we call bad things, tragedies, accidents. We don't understand. I don't understand why that uh, criminal yesterday decided to kill the Mesquite police officer. I don't understand. God does. I don't know what purpose it furthered in 
God's great plan, but he does, to allow that to happen. But I trust God with it. As a logical man or woman, you might be tempted to say, what does the anointing of a Gentile Syrian king have to do with what was going on in Israel, specifically with the life of Elijah? But as we read further in the scriptures, God's going to show us, as he would show Elijah, that God always knows what's best for us. His plans are always for the good of his people, even when we don't see it now. And I'm going to use this example until Jesus comes or until I die because it I can't think of a better one. Years ago, Brother Fulton was preaching the gospel and pastoring a church and equipping the saints and others to teach and preach as well. And he lost much of the use of his voice and was unable to effectively pastor. He was pining for the Lord to heal him and return him to that ministry to resume the work that he'd been called to. And a logical man might look at that and say, Lord, why would you allow a preacher of your word to be sidelined like this? But it was during that time that God sent Brother Fulton to anoint Hazael king over Syria, if you're following this analogy. That is, he sat in a chair in a pew out here in the audience and was taught by others and had time to seek the Lord further in prayer about which way his life would go. A logical man would have a hard time understanding, well, how would this further the ministry? How could this be a part of God's greater plan? But during that time, God opened doors for him to develop the knowimsaved.com website, which has been used of the Lord to direct many of you to the truth about the gospel of your salvation. And then that website was translated into Spanish and Swahili, and who knows how many more languages in the future. And now, on the other side of that, we can thank God that he was sovereign, knowing full well that a pastor's vocal trouble would be the vehicle by which an even more expansive, effectual ministry would be accomplished. And Elijah will one day understand why he was sent to anoint Hazael king over Syria. Now let's look at verse 16. This is a continuation of the command given to Elijah. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Now let's look at that. Why, who was king over Israel now? It was Ahab. God didn't tell Elijah to do this first, but to do it second. Now, if, if God would have said, now Elijah... I'm going to give you these two responsibilities. I want you to anoint a king over Israel and a king over Syria. And Syria was a Gentile nation. If you left it up to Elijah to prioritize it, which one do you think he would do first? He'd say, well, Israel, 
I'll go anoint this king over Israel, and we'll catch up with Hosea later on. That's not how God had him do it. He had him go to the Gentile first and then to the Jew, to Syria, and then back to Israel. He didn't tell Elijah to kill Ahab, but to anoint another king in his place. And God would take care of the rest. And we have to learn to trust that when God gives a command, we're to obey it in faith, not to question God, how are you going to do this? Well, well, God, don't you realize that Ahab's still on the throne? We can't have two kings. Example in John chapter 21, if you're taking notes, John chapter 21, Jesus had just told Peter how Peter was going to die one day. How'd you like that? Standing next to the Lord. You know, sometimes we may joke around. I have a patrol vehicle that has so much equipment inside it. And some of it's stuffed down between the seats or held by a seat belt. In other words, I've got a lot of flying objects. And I was telling a trooper the other day, you know, if I ever have a fatality crash in my own patrol vehicle, the hard part's going to be figuring out which of these flying objects caused my death. So we kind of joke around about stuff. That's a dark humor that law enforcement has to have to, to survive what we do sometimes, at least psychologically. But if I had the Lord walking with me, telling me how I was going to die, that'd be sobering, wouldn't it? He didn't tell Peter when he would die. He said, this is how you're going to die. And there were other disciples there as well. And in John 21, listen to verses 19 through 23. This spake he, Jesus, signifying by what death he should glorify God, that is Peter. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die yet. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Jesus had told Peter, you are going to die a certain way. Now let's go, follow me. And Peter said, hold on just a minute. What about this fellow here? What's he going to do? Is he, is he going to die like me? Now I'm putting that in there as a possibly uh, something Peter may have been thinking, but the Bible says... He asked him, what about him? Jesus said, in the way we'd say it, don't you worry about that, none. You follow me. So when Elijah was sent to, uh, to his mission, that wasn't a time for him to question God. Now, Lord, what, what about Ahab? What about this fellow over here? How are we going to do this? Don't you know Hazael? He's, uh, he's not king there right now. It's been Hadad. How am I going to do this? Jesus didn't owe Peter an explanation of what would happen to John the disciple. That's who he was talking about. 
whom Jesus loved, what happened to that disciple would have no bearing on Peter's assignment to follow Jesus. He said, follow me. In other places, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't put any conditions on following him. He said, follow me. It was a command. And that's our command as well. Likewise, Elijah would have been out of line by asking God, what are you going to do with Ahab? How am I supposed to anoint Jehu as king when Ahab is still alive? You know, God doesn't tell us the day or the hour when the Son of Man shall come because it's not necessary for us to know. What's necessary for us to know is that it's going to happen, and that's trust. And look back in your text in verse 16. There's a third anointing Elijah is to perform. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Here's where it gets real for Elijah. God just told him to anoint his replacement. How many of you in here have ever had a job where you trained the person who was going to take your job? Yeah. I remember the first time I ever talked to somebody uh, when I was a trooper, and he was working at IBM. He'd been a longtime employee there. And he was distraught when I stopped him, and he told me he had just finished training the person who was going to take his job before they terminated this employee I stopped. I felt sorry for him. But Elijah is supposed to anoint Elisha. And knowing that if you go back to these other two kings, Elijah is to anoint when he anoints Hazael, that necessarily means that the current king must die or be imprisoned. When he anoints Jehu, that means Ahab's going to have to be dethroned or possibly killed. So since that's the pattern that's being set, Elijah now has to consider what's going to happen to him when he, after he anoints Elisha as the prophet in his room. In thy room means in thy place, not in his living room, or it's not a location where it's going to take place. We would just say, Brother Luke is going to take Brother Andy's place, rather than Brother Luke is going to be in my room. That's the way our vernacular is now. Now, verse 17, And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. You see how God went in the order he anointed those three men. Hazael first, and what that meant is there's going to become there's going to come a future event when Hazael and his army are going to slay a number of people. And some of those people are going to escape. And the ones who do, Jehu is going to kill. And some of those people are going to escape. And the ones who do, Elisha, the new prophet, will kill. So if God had said, all right, here's my plan. My plan is to do what he said in verse 17. But Elijah, I want you to figure out how to make that happen. Elijah would have messed that up just like we would have messed it up, just like we do mess things up. That's why God doesn't leave his plans in our hands. He tells us what to do and we do it. 
and we leave all of the in-betweens and the gaps and the unknowns up to him. And it always works out perfectly in God's eyes and for us. There in verse 17, there's about to be a great slaughter of unbelievers, both in Israel and Syria. And to prepare for that time, God had to select a king, Hazael, who would carry out that mission. You're going to read, as we study uh, the remaining chapters over the next few weeks and months, you'll see why the current king of Syria could not be used, why God chose not to use him. And those people who would escape Hazael's hand would come into Israel. And so God prepared another king, confident that that king, Jehu, would take care of these escaped fugitives. Now we're getting a glimpse of why God had Elijah go to Syria first to anoint Hazael king over Syria. Whereas the logical man would say that seems to be out of the way. It seems to be an extraneous activity. God had that in his plan. And furthermore, God connects Hazael's mission with Jehu's mission, bringing it closer to home for Elijah. Ahab was a wicked king, and may I say he was a henpecked king too. His wife decided what religion would be practiced in their house, and it wouldn't have bothered, Eli- or wouldn't have bothered Ahab to have a few more unrighteous fugitives from Syria live in his land as long as they join the church of the golden calf. But Jehu was not going to allow that. So Ahab has to go. Verse 18, and this is God's consolation to poor Elijah. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal and every mouth which hath not kissed him. This verse is the answer to what Elijah said in verse 10. Would you look back across the page to your left there at verse 10? Same chapter. And at the very end, what does Elijah say? I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one serving God. Now Elijah has seen not only what Hazael, what his anointing has to do with him, but also what Jehu's anointing has to do with him and what Elisha's anointing has to do with him. And furthermore, God has shown Elijah, you're not the only one who refused to bow the knee to Baal or to kiss him. I've got 7,000 just like you. Sometimes we need to know that, don't we? Before knowing this, Elijah might well have assumed that if he were killed, there'd be nobody left on this earth who would serve God and resist Baal. What's one thing we might conclude in trying to determine why God sent Elijah to anoint Hazael king over Syria? In the end, it's this that Elijah would know that God was still in control. That he had 7,000 faithful men in reserve. And we have to be reminded of that, I think, when we see our dear brothers and sisters across the world. In fact, we are reminded of it. We see them preaching the gospel, teaching their families, their churches, 
hugging those Bibles. They're hungry for God's word. And some of them are in countries where their lives are at stake for what they believe. Here's another application for us as a church. We should always be looking for the Elishas and the 7,000. We're going to die someday. Some of us will die much sooner than others, either by age or accident or whatever it may be. And we should not fall into the trap of thinking, well, there aren't any suitable replacements for me. Did you know God already has them prepared for service? We just need to be ready to train them, encourage them, and then pass that torch to them. That's essentially what the laying of hands is. It's passing a responsibility to the next generation of those who will serve the Lord. Verse 19, God's done. So he, that's Elijah, departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he with the twelfth and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Now, it doesn't appear to me, mainly based on what God told uh, Elijah to do in order, it doesn't appear to me that this was when Elijah anointed Elisha. I'm not going to be solid on that, but it doesn't make sense that he anointed him. He passed by him. And it says that Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Now let's think about the spiritual lesson here. This represents a prophet who was already engaged in the work. He's already working. Now what was Elijah's thought back in in the uh, wilderness? It's just me, God, and they're going to kill me. And the implication is there won't be any, anybody else left who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. God said there's 7,000 just like you. And now he runs across one of them, Elisha. Elijah didn't have to supply the plow or the oxen or the ground. He just passed by him and he cast his mantle upon him. And we'll see what that means in just a moment. In John chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, John 4, 34 through 37, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. What Jesus taught here, he taught a lot of things, but one of the things was that there had been much work already done before the reapers appeared on the scene. Elisha was already plowing. He was already engaged in a work that was going to produce a harvest. Elijah had also been engaged in a work that was going to produce a harvest but he wouldn't live to see most of it. Nevertheless, both Elisha and Elijah would one day rejoice together, as did the sower and the reaper. When a Christian witness 
gets to hear a new believer say, I'm trusting in Jesus for my salvation, like we were so blessed to read this week about that 18-year-old boy in Germany or young man in Germany professing his faith in Christ. That witness should never be puffed up at his or her evangelistic ability. First of all, salvation is of the Lord. And secondly, there was one plowing with the oxen before you ever sowed the seed. That was God's Holy Spirit tendering the heart of that unbeliever that he might have faith in the good news of what Jesus accomplished for him. And there was probably another one behind a plow, a God-sent preacher, or perhaps many, who had declared the gospel over and over again to this unbeliever, but it fell on stony ground, or it was choked by thorns and thistles. And perhaps that preacher's been long dead, but he will one day rejoice with the reaper. He'll one day rejoice with the one who was there to hear that profession of faith in Christ. Look back in your text, the word mantle here is translated also as the word glory in the book of Zechariah. Chapter 11, verse 3, where Zechariah was speaking against wicked Lebanon. He said, There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. So think of that word glory with the word mantle as we continue looking at the mantle uh, in our subsequent studies. It said there in verse 19 that Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Now this would uh, seem to be in obedience to God's command to anoint Elisha, but God had told Elijah to anoint Hazael, then Jehu, and then Elisha. So Again, I don't think this is when the actual anointing occurred. And you study that out and see what you're satisfied with. But let the scripture do the talking. But what we don't see is that he gave the mantle to him. Or that he covers him with it. Or touches him with it even. It says he cast it upon him. And that could simply mean that he passed by with him and maybe he hit it with, hit him with the skirt of it. I don't know. But we won't see Elisha actually taking this mantle from Elijah until 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 13. So this action of casting his mantle or his glory upon Elisha, I believe was symbolic of transferring that authority to him one day. There was nothing in the mantle unless God put it there. So placing the mantle on Elijah, whenever that happened, would mean that God would do the mighty works through Elisha in the future. The mantle had no power, did it? It was God who would give the power to the mantle. Let's look at verse 20, and then, of course, we probably won't make it through this verse. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, go back again, for what have I done to thee? 
We've seen a similar thing there in Luke chapter 9, verses 58 through 62. Luke 9, 58 through 62. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. It's the same thing that Elisha asked to do. And Jesus said unto him, now think about this and what Elisha was doing when Elijah came upon him. Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So one thing we learn here is that Elisha needed some spiritual growth, just like Simon Peter, just like you and I do. And he would learn that before Elijah left this earth. Elisha's response should have been to go right back to the oxen and plow with them, not to leave the oxen and return to his home and then decide to follow Elijah. You know, it's an unfortunate truth that our families can be the biggest discouragement we face when we're trying to serve the Lord. And perhaps this is one reason Jesus said what he did in that passage from Luke. Now, we're going to have to stop mid-thought right here. So we'll come back next week, kind of back up and get a running start with verse 20 again, and then continue in this wonderful study. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for those who came, thankful for those who watched, and for those who may watch the recorded version later on. And Lord, we pray that your word is high and lifted up in the hearts of each who heard, that the opinions of man and our traditions and our uh, thoughts that are aside from your word would have no bearing on our faith in what you've said. And Lord, let us learn from it and apply it in our lives according to your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen.